An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In with John Lukumnik, we're pleased to welcome our special guest, Georgia Stewart, co-founder and CEO of Tumelo, a much-talked-about financial technology startup. Tumelo works with major asset managers and asset owners to give voice to the individual investors who have entrusted them with their savings. Tumelo recently raised an A round of financing totaling $19 million from some of the more recognizable financial visionaries in this space. More about Tumelo later. Georgia studied natural sciences at Cambridge and has experience across the sustainable investment sector, including equity investment analysis at Jupiter Asset Management, clean tech venture capital at IP Group, and conservation projects at Fauna and Flora International. Welcome, Georgia. Thank you for having me, John. So let's start at the beginning. What's your origin story? We find that interesting people often have an interesting lives. So how did you become the person you are? And is it true that your childhood ambition was to be a jockey? <laughs> Where on earth did you find that? <laughs> yeah, so I suppose that is quite true. Yes, I grew up in Edinburgh in Scotland. I have two sisters who are younger than me. On the point of the jockey, I suppose the single defining thing throughout my whole childhood is that I was obsessed with animals. All of them, budgies and hamsters and gerbils and horses and dogs and completely apart from my family because they couldn't care less. So it was something that I was always fighting against. And I wanted to be a jockey. I wanted to be a bat. I ended up trying to study conservation and that's what got me into climate change. I suppose I also grew up with... I think quite an entrepreneurial background, which I think we'll get onto, but I, I've kind of had the privilege of being able to watch entrepreneurs throughout my childhood. So my dad ran a marquee business, my uncles ran self-storage businesses, kind of everyone surrounding me runs, you know, not tech businesses, not very scalable businesses, but businesses all the same. So I've learned a lot from that. As I said, I went to, to Cambridge to study um, natural sciences. Within that, the aim was really to focus on conservation and climate, which is what I did. And within that, I got involved in a group called Positive Investment Cambridge, which I can't take any credit for kind of ideating or innovating on. There were already some amazing people there, like Ellen Quigley and others who were kind of defining a new form of sustainable investment, I think um, you would call it. We weren't anti-divestment, but the whole idea was that divestment could only go so far. And actually, if you could positively engage with companies and be a responsible steward of the assets that you were investing into the system, then you could achieve specific outcomes, whether that's human rights related or climate related or, or ammunition related. And so I, I joined that group and maybe we'll talk about it more later, but I got kind of wrapped up in that world of sustainable finance, specifically shareholder activism and shareholder engagement. And after I left university, I spent a bit of time, as you said, kind of doing conservation, but very closely linked to businesses. So thinking about like business and its effect on biodiversity. 
um, and also looking at kind of the green asset management space and understanding how asset managers were engaging with investee companies. So I worked a bit at Jupiter and, and some other as- active asset managers who were, who were doing that quite thoroughly. And then I started to mellow with two of my uh, co-founders, Ben and Will, who I went to university with. And that is really that. There's not much more to my origin story yet. So you, you mentioned that two friends from Cambridge found it to mellow with you. How did that come to pass? It wasn't like you had the idea, at, maybe you did have the idea at Cambridge, but you started it a couple of years after you around. So how did you either keep in contact or reconnect or why did these three people get together some years after university and start to mellow? I guess there's a couple of different factors that came together there. We had been living together at college, me, Ben and Will. So we knew each other very well. We are still kind of really embedded in the same friendship group, which is both brilliant and taxing sometimes. Then after university, really Will had an idea to build an investing app and he, he wanted to build a direct to consumer investment product. And I was, as I said, really thoroughly engaged in this kind of shareholder democracy world of actually, you know, how, how could we drive change through shareholder voting? How could we give that power to the people? How could we help individual investors have a stronger voice in the stewardship process? And so I think it would be fair to say that I hijacked his original idea and said, this would be great, but actually, what if it looked like this? And, you know, maybe we could take this to market. And then through a series of kind of trial and error, we, we ended up in where we are today, just with, with Tamela, which I think we'll talk about. And it wasn't that long after university that we started. So it was maybe nine months after we graduated or maybe 12 months after we graduated. And the boys started working on it before me. I actually went on a big sailing trip with my dad, a transatlantic thing. So I was preoccupied for about four months. But then the minute I got back, we, we started working on it together. Before I ask you to describe Tamela, I want to address a bigger question that's related to the need, or perhaps not the need, for Tabella. Corporate governance pioneer Bob Monks once famously said, capitalism without owners will fail. So first, where is capitalism failing today? And where do you think it's succeeding? He said, where is capitalism failing today? And this is the problem that I see with the whole market is that um, success and failure is so contextualized, or it requires context, and it requires you to think about success or failure in terms of time, because what might look like a successful outcome today for a certain group of people, that exact same outcome that looks like a success could be a failure for a different group of people or in a different time in 10 years time. So, I mean, I think that's one of the problems or the failures of the capitalist system at the moment is it, it's very hard to take those different agendas and those different timeframes into consideration whilst also achieving the outcome that you know, different demographics and different groups need and want. Maybe an example of that is kind of thinking about externalities, perhaps in the fossil fuel space, where they're not necessarily taking account of carbon emissions, for example. But there are lots of other examples surrounding human rights or gender diversity. But if we if you take that example when where they're not necessarily or haven't been taking those externalities into consideration, that is a failure over the long term because eventually that's going to come back to bite and the way that our capitalist system is set up is um, it doesn't reward people to think about those things today. And, and that, I think, is a, a really big problem. I suppose from a success standpoint, you've seen a lot of innovation and, I, and that ultimately is, is supported by the capitalist system. And, and I am the most supporter of that. For example, you have big tech companies or 
you know, who have really driven information equality globally. And, and you see millennials and, and Gen Z coming into the workforce with so much power because they have so much information at their fingertips. And obviously there are challenges with that as well. But I definitely see kind of in places where big tech hasn't been able to flourish. And, you know, my connections in Russia, for example, where, you know, actually the, their access to information is so limited um, and the effect that that obviously has on, on the views of an entire population really puts into stark contrast, you know, what capitalism is capable of and people who don't have access to that, how their lives turn out differently. First, where does the name Tumelo come from? And secondly, describe it. What is it? Okay, so Tumelo means belief. We wanted to believe in a better system. It was a child of democracy and, and we wanted a name that was aspirational and not very financial. Um, so that's the background to the name. And the company itself is really trying to achieve shareholder democracy. So our vision is that by 2030, any investor will be able to have a, a shareholder vote. And by that, we mean retail investors and pooled funds and pension members or, or um, 401k participants. And we mean asset owners and foundations and endowments who believe anyone that's participating in the market should have a voice in the market and be able to influence the outcomes um, at the companies that they're investing in. Now, that's not how the system's set up today at all. Today, all of the voting power is concentrated at the asset manager, typically, um, and the asset manager is able to make decisions um, about what an investee company like Tesla does on human rights or, you know, how many climate experts are there on Exxon's board. And those decisions are being made at the moment in a relatively undemocratic way, um, and we'd like to see that change. And so what our platform does is it gives those end investors that I talked about, retail investors, asset owners, an ability to see what votes are coming up and to participate in the voting process where they haven't been able to do so before. And just to be clear, by votes, you're talking about the type of resolutions that come up at annual general meetings of public companies, which if you're invested in in the UK and ICER and 401k in the US, you would own, but not necessarily even know that there was an annual general meeting coming up because that notice goes to the fund manager. Exactly. Okay. As we record this in mid-2022, there's a bit of a backlash against environmental social governance issues and sustainable investing. And it feels like the backlash is fueled by multiple arguments from multiple point of, points of view. From the right comes the argument that this is woke capitalism, trying to deal with political issues that um, the left wasn't able to get done through democratic means. And from the left comes the argument that there's lots of smoke and little fire with fund managers using these issues for marketing, but not for true change. So what do you think about these criticisms? Is there validity? Isn't there? Is it overstated? And why do you think there's such anger now? That's a lot of questions round up into one, but so... Maybe to just take them in turn, the argument from the right that this is kind of woke and shouldn't be dealt with at the corporate level. I think my feeling around that argument is just like, why not? If you have problems that are so massive as to the problems that we're facing, whether it's human rights issues or climate is a great one, why would you not try to solve that problem at every level? Of course, we need government intervention. But why would you not put pressure on the largest institutions in the world, which are corporates, 
to also drive change. It, it just, for me, makes no sense that you wouldn't try to drive both at the same time, especially if you're my age and you're looking at 50, 70 years ahead of you where you're still going to be um, experiencing the repercussions of what these corporates do or don't do today. And I, I think to the question around, you know, what are asset managers doing and is it greenwashing? A big problem is that the, from my perspective, a big problem is where ESG or sustainable investing has come from. You know, it was originally an idea that really came out of like Quaker religion and it was about screening out individual companies that didn't align with the kind of religious um, beliefs and what well, at least that, that's one part of where it came from. And so that it was from a kind of divestment background. It was all about how can we screen out companies? And now we're trying to overlay this kind of outcomes focused, you know, how, what are we achieving? Like what aims are we achieving from an environmental and sustainable perspective by screening out? And, and the answer typically is, actually, you're not really achieving very much, generally speaking. And, and that is really where the problem, I think, lies. Whereas with Superchip um, and other forms of kind of more active or kind of active, not in the active versus passive sense, but kind of more proactive impact um, perspective, then you start to actually be able to drive change because you're truly reallocating capital to places where capital wouldn't otherwise be, or you are driving change of companies because you're voting in different directors or different chairmen um, or women, or you are changing the policies and processes. In some cases, the shareholder proposals are actually asking companies to you know, stop selling a specific product or to invest more in, in, in kind of new strategies. So it can be quite prescriptive, but ultimately... That, for me, is what impact looks like. And, and divestment and that kind of negative screening gets a lot of stick. But, but I think that's fair that it gets stick because I don't think it's really achieving the outcomes that, that it perhaps could sound like if you didn't understand what it's actually doing behind the scenes. Let's talk about the entrepreneurial side of the business. Um, Tabella is still a private company. You recently completed a $19 million financing round. First, what are you going to use the money for? Perhaps more interestingly, how did you and your co-founders feel when it closed and you had hard cash proof that your vision and what you had built was valuable, not just in your opinion, but in the opinion of some very seasoned outside investors? Yes. So we raised $19 million in February and we raised that from a group of individuals and institutional investors, um, including Fidelity, um, uh, Elgin, the Bond Emerald, and also a venture capital firm called The Treasury, based in New York. And I guess, I mean, for us, we're going to use the money for growth. We're a hybrid tech company. We are looking at investing both in products and also overseas expansion into the US. We already have a couple of partnerships there where we're working between kind of brokers and fund managers to line up that boats in capability. Um, in terms of I guess other things that this is also going to enable is for us to engage more thoroughly in the policy conversation, both in the UK and the US, which I'm excited about. And I think it's, there, there needs to be a kind of tech voice in there, the weather is lacking at the moment. In terms of how we've felt, um, I think, I feel like this is an entrepreneurial or a founder thing, but it, it's hard to kind of pinpoint a moment where it felt like the race was over. Um, we, you know, you're, you're like always raising and you're getting commitments and then you're negotiating and then it all feels like it could fall apart. And then it kind of eventually happens. But I suppose there is a day when all of the money lands in the account, but it feels like immediately you're distracted about like what needs to happen next. Ultimately though, I think I feel 
a sense of certainly achievement. Um, but having people who are in this space and industry experts to kind of align themselves with our vision was a really incredible feeling. I guess you feel quite lonely a lot of the time where you're kind of hanging on to a belief that this is the right thing to do. And I, I, I certainly go through periods where I think like, is this the right thing to do? Should I be trying to drive shareholder democracy? Is that, is that a sensible thing? Is, is it ever even going to be achievable? And you have to question yourself. If you don't, then, then you know, I don't know, you're crazy. Um, so it feels pretty good when, when institutions put that much money behind your idea and, and kind of suggest that they're not only going to believe in it, but also help you get there. That's the other part of, you know, taking institutional capital is that suddenly you feel slightly less alone because there are people who can connect you and support you and challenge you in a way that we have never had before when we've kind of been in it alone and only had individual investors. When doing my research for this episode, I obviously read a myriad of features and interviews with you. And it was intriguing to me how many focused on your gender. Um, I mean, we live in a time when women CEOs, as well as women who are people of color, non-binary, We'll still be asked about it. And Tabella is a tech company. Only 70% of the tech workers in the UK are female. But the sheer volume of mentions about gender, um, which I, ironically, I suppose, inevitably I'm now adding to. <laughs> um, and I know the question of it, what it's like to found Tabella as a woman is a possible answer. Uh, my favorite reference, this was George Harrison was once asked what it was like to be a Beatle. He said he didn't know he'd never not been a Beatle. Right. But, but are there specific instances where you thought the reaction you've gotten is different than that one of your male co-founders would have gotten? There's a lot of content out there that does refer to the gender piece. It's not something that I've actually sought to create. Um, it's something that people, journalists especially really bring to the table and want to write about, which I think is a good thing. And for me, it's certainly created opportunities that I think might not have existed because you know, we don't just have people writing about Tamela because they love the idea of shareholder democracy. We can hook people on the idea that there's a female CEO and, you know, that's what gets them in, that's what gets them in. And then we can tell our story and explain the vision. And so for me, there's, it's only really upside, at least from the media standpoint. I guess George Harrison has a good point because it's hard to know how I would have been treated if I was a different gender. Um, and generally speaking, I've had a pretty privileged um experience today you know I've, I've I'm well educated I, I've had three years at Cambridge I've made a lot of connections in the asset management space over the last four years I don't feel like I'm at a disadvantage I think maybe in this space like in this time where the market's doing what it is to be a woman and, and perhaps on average to be slightly more risk averse and to to not shoot so high on things like valuation for example where I think you do start to see discrepancies between what men and women can achieve, for example, at a fundraising level, you know, now you start to feel pretty good about having done that, having been really sensible. Um, when I was raising, for sure, I had this feeling of, you know, oh, we're raising at this valuation and I can see other people, you know, almost all of them, um, male tech founders, raising at valuations that feel insane. And I don't even know how I would go about telling that story to, to achieve that, but actually you know, it's, it's starting to balance itself out and we're not going to be in a position where we ever have to consider a dime round because we've raised a really sensible valuation for the stage that we're at. Whereas others are clearly going to be in a really difficult position if the market doesn't bounce back, which, you know, it's unlikely to do quickly. So 
yeah, I, I'm sure I've experienced some differences, but it's not something that I've noticed or felt held back by. You once said your favorite inspirational quote was from Mae West. She said, quote, you only live once, but if you get it right, once is enough, end quote. Now, I love Mae West quotes. They're funny, they're witty, but that humor sometimes covers up the depth of the wit because that quote actually begs a question. What do you think about getting it right? How do you define getting life right? A couple of things spring to mind for me when you ask that question. Um, one of them harks back to what I'm saying about ESG, about outcomes. Can you point to outcomes that are different um, than, if, you know, than if you had not existed or not done the work that you had done? Maybe the right word is legacy. I'm not sure, but I, I don't mean it from a kind of fame perspective. And that outcomes for me can be multiple things. Like I want to create a company where people really enjoy going to work and they actually, the experience that they have at Tomelo drives the experiences they then expect at other organizations. And, and, and actually our organization, not just our vision, but the way that we run the company can kind of change people's lives. And then obviously there's the vision. Can we actually achieve what we're trying to? And certainly already we have changed the way that policymakers are thinking about policy. We've changed the way that asset managers are thinking about their work and, and what's possible and what's not. And so you know, ultimately, if we were to fail tomorrow, I still feel like the outcome is different than if the company hadn't existed. And then I guess the other side of that is like for me, family is really important. And I'm a very passionate person. I, I love a lot of things, but I, I, there are people that I really love. And I think living life right for me means like investing in my sisters, for example, and kind of supporting them to have the most fulfilling life that they could have. That is really important to me and comes to mind when you repeat that quote back to me. Let's finish with some short answers or questions. How do you relax? I run. I love running. How much do you run a day? Uh, I would say I run like four or five times a week, so not every day. But um, I love, I like to do marathons. I did the Boston Marathon my, um, about three months ago, which was amazing. I'm not like a serious I don't have a training program or things. I, I kind of feel like running is my meditation and I, you know, don't take my phone and I just listen to probably traffic, nothing very inspiring, but I find it um, relaxing. And also I live in the north of London where there's also parks and there's birds and it's great to just get out of the house. Your definition of serious and mine is different if you do the Boston <laughs> Marathon. If you do the Boston Marathon, it's serious. Um, what music do you listen to? Um, so... I find this question very hard. I, I, I'm not like a music person. I feel like everyone gasps when I, when I say that and I'm a bit embarrassed to admit it, but I, I still like don't like music. I like all music. I'm not very picky. I like, like jazz. I like electro swing. Sometimes I listen to rap and like, you know, I like US country music. I grew up on Johnny Cash and Rod Stewart and, um, but then also probably Kylie Minogue. I don't know. I, I'm having an eclectic mix on my Spotify. I think someone recommended me that I listened to um, a band called Wild Rivers about three weeks ago, and I think it's still on my Spotify. So, you know, for me, I'll just go with this life. What are you reading right now? Oh, I'm reading a book 
by Gerard Durrell, who is a conservationist, but it's a novel. Um, it's called Rosie is My Relative, and it was written in, or published in 1968. It's about a guy in England who inherits an elephant and takes it across the coast of England and gets into all sorts of trouble. But Gerard Durrell is a really amazing man. He grew up in Jersey and, and raised a lot of awareness from a conservation perspective, but not about animals like pandas. He, he was really interested in them. Um, kind of small brown creatures that no one else cared about and, and that drew a lot of attention to that. So he he writes um, novels as well, and, or he did, and I enjoy those. If you could be on vacation right now, where would you go? The west coast of Scotland. I love the islands, like the Outer Hebrides. I haven't been there in a long time. I used to go there as a child all the time. Maybe I'm just saying that because I'm really warm right now and they're generally very cold and windy and rainy, but... Um, like for me, those, those islands, you know, they have 180 people on them and they're super remote. And maybe because I live in London, that is very attractive right now. Last question. If you could magically speak into everyone in the world's ears, what would you tell them? There's like a, a boring one. And I guess one of them, well, maybe I'd tell everyone to be nicer to their mothers. I feel like none of us are kind enough to our mothers. Um, but then maybe I, I would ask people if they have thought about the power of their money. And, and it feels like something that so few people have ever thought about. People think about where, how they travel, what they eat. Um, they think about their carbon footprint, but very few people think about the power that the capital markets have to drive the change that they're trying to seek in the world. And so I guess that's what I would want to have a conversation with the world about or get them thinking on. Today's guest on Outside In has been Georgia Stewart, CEO of Tunelo. You can hear that she has a vision for how to live right, to make a difference, to have impact. So far, it seems to be working. Thanks so much, Georgia. Thank you for having me, John. Finally, a quick programming note. We're halfway through season two of Outside In. We're taking a short summer break. New sessions will post after the Labor Day holiday in the United States in mid-September. In the meantime, feel free to download past sessions you may have missed. Among my personal favorites from this season are internationally renowned sculptor and fintech entrepreneur Jonti Horowitz, the heroic Karina Litvak, asset manager Jan Van Eck, former PRI head Fiona Reynolds, and Canadian pension fund head Barb's Van. But you might find others that are what you crave. Outside In is available wherever you download podcasts, and we always appreciate it. When you follow and subscribe. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukonik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohigasa, John Lukonik, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.